Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. It's the 12th of April 2022. I've recently finished teaching the first ever cohort of the Virtual Employment Law Academy, which many of you will have been part of, and it went incredibly well. Thank you to everyone who took part. This season, like the last two, is 10 episodes long, with an episode coming out every Tuesday. We deal with all matters, employment law and HR. Most of my guests are practitioners who are at the coalface of HR practice and employment tribunal litigation, and they share their experience, their tips, and their knowledge. In a moment, I'm going to tell you who's joining me today, but let me first give you a little taster of what I've got planned for the next couple of months. Next week, I'm speaking with Anthony Sendel on workplace mediation. It's a lot more interesting than it sounds. Other guests in forthcoming episodes include Mike Klein, who is an expert in pre-employment screening. Our regular guest, Michael Salter, who's talking on paperless working in tribunals. Donna Negus on a day in the life of an HR consultant. And Sean Jones QC on being a good witness. All those and lots more to come. I also want to thank Feeman Consulting and also Hunter Law for supporting this season and making it possible for me to bring leading practitioners to your ears. You'll hear more about Feeman Consulting and Hunter Law later in the episode. Today, I'm joined by Gillian Howard, who's spoken in the past at one of my series of 30 employment webinars on instructing occupational health. She was so good, so knowledgeable, that I wanted to get her back to speak about it some more. And this podcast is the ideal way to do it. Gillian Howard is an experienced employment lawyer advising both employers and employees. She specialises in discrimination cases, particularly sex and disability discrimination, and is an honorary fellow of the Faculty of Occupational Medicine and the Royal College of Physicians in London. She practises from Gillian Howard Associates and is a consultant at Leighton's Solicitors. She's also an author and a broadcaster, as well as a speaker at conferences and workshops. She's known as the Rottweiler with a handbag because of her tenacity. And in this episode, Gillian and I discuss how to find the right occupational health provider, whether cloud video platform assessments are satisfactory replacements for face-to-face occupational health assessments, how to deal with employees who won't cooperate, and lots more. Let's go. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. A problem that many people find is they discover after they've got an occupational health report that they actually hate the occupational health practitioner. How do you choose the right occupational health practitioner, Gillian Howard? Good morning. That is the uh, $64,000 question. And it is a very important one, as you've quite rightly said. And it is the starting point for getting your occupational health reports, reviews, uh, assessments done properly and correctly. Now, one obvious way of finding a really good occupational health practitioner, as they're called now, uh, 
is to get a recommendation, a recommendation from either someone like you, Daniel, or like me. I obviously happen to know a bank of really good occupational health physicians or your fellow CIPD or HR colleagues who will either have had a bad experience and therefore will have changed their occupational health uh, practitioner or will have someone good that they will recommend. Uh, Clearly, you want someone in your location because eventually, uh, rather sooner rather than later, one hopes, there will be the face-to-face occupational health assessments rather than Zoom or Teams uh, occupational health assessments, and you'll want someone good. One of the most important ways of at least assessing their expertise will be if the occupational health practitioner has the membership of the Faculty of Occupational Medicine, or preferably the fellowship. So if they've got the fellowship, they are someone who has passed their examinations, has got years of experience, and one hopes would be a very reliable occupational health practitioner. But word of mouth, recommendation, and trying them and seeing. Uh, don't give a you know one or two or three year retainer contract to someone until you've tried them first and got to know and like how they respond, that they respond quickly to uh, uh, calls for appointments, that they uh, do a a professional interview with your employee, that they ask all the right questions, and that they write a report that is helpful. I'll be going through all those points, of course, uh, in this podcast. Now, you've mentioned Gillian Howard, the Faculty of Occupational Medicine. While you were talking, I googled it, uh, and I can't see, although I may have missed it, I can't see that they've got a list of their members public on their website. So how do you actually find out if someone's a member or a fellow? Well, you ask them. I mean, the first thing you do if you instruct an occupational health practitioner is to ask for their CV. So you ask them what qualification. There are three. There's a diploma, which is a very, you know, early qualification. Uh, There's the membership and the fellowship. Anyone decent will have the fellowship. No, unfortunately, unlike the Law Society, the Faculty of Occupational Medicine doesn't keep a public record of all their members, I suppose, for GDP reasons. But I'm sure if you rang up and spoke to the registrar and asked for occupational health physicians who are registered with them in the area where you are particularly located, they may well be able to give you that. But uh, there won't be a public record. Now, what are the benefits of choosing a generalist occupational health practitioner against a specialist such as an orthopaedic surgeon or a psychologist who's a consultant and has years of experience in the particular field? Ah, well, that is also a very interesting question. The occupational health practitioner is able to answer two questions, the functional capacity and the functional disability of the or limitations of the employee. If they have a particular medical condition that is outside the general knowledge of the occupational health practitioner, then what the OHP will do is probably refer your employee to a consultant. And unfortunately, a layperson cannot refer someone directly to a consultant. It has to be through a a doctor. So, for example, one of my very, very good occupational health consultants is a lady called Dr. Margaret Samuel. Her specialty is mental health. She has specialised in mental health. So you wouldn't need to go to a psychiatrist or ask her to refer 
an employee to a consultant. If you used Maggie Samuel, for example, for someone with a mental health problem. Um, but if, as you've correctly stated, someone has an orthopedic problem, I've got a case at the moment where a lady has bad knees and is waiting for an operation on her knees. In actual fact, the occupational health practitioner was able to give a very good report, didn't need to refer her. But what he did, he read the consultant's reports and looked at the x-rays. Gillian, you said that people can come to me or come to you for lists of recommended occupational health practitioners. Just a quick reminder for people who are members of the HR Inner Circle, www.hrinnercircle.co.uk, that we actually maintain a list on there of recommended occupational health practitioners and, and people who are members and have had a good experience recommend people on that list. So it's a great place to go if you are a member. If you're not a member, I'm afraid you, you don't get access to it. But Gillian... You said that you have a list. Could listeners to this podcast get in touch with you and um, ask you for recommendations? Absolutely. I'd be delighted because it's certainly in my interest, their interests and occupational health physicians, practitioners' interests uh, to get to know each other. So I'd be delighted. Well, I will ask you for your contact details at the end, but just because we, this would be a sensible place for you to say how someone can get in touch with you. What's the best way for someone to contact you if they want a recommendation? They can either look me up on my website, they can contact me on my email, which is gillian at gillianhoward.co.uk, or they can ask you for my contact details. So somebody has chosen an occupational health practitioner, and let's not forget, of course, Gillian, that the instructions could come from an employer, or they could come from, or at least recommended by an independent HR professional or an employment lawyer. How does one write proper instructions to the occupational health practitioner? Well, I have a a sort of template uh, in my hand, actually, uh, or in my head, and I'm very happy to share this with you. It is important to write clear, unambiguous and non-partisan instructions. Remember, uh, these instructions, if it ever gets into an employment tribunal, will be read by a judge. If they're not joint instructions, so the other side, that's the employee uh, or her GP or his GP, has had an input into them, then it's very important that the occupational health practitioner is not persuaded or uh, is is not given partisan instructions. So my template instructions go like this. There's an introduction where we say either we are instructing this occupational physician as to be an expert, or it's a joint instruction. We give a bit of background to why we're asking, you know, the employee has been off sick for blah, blah, blah dates, and this is what they've um, got wrong with them. If the report is being done for the purposes of an employment tribunal, you'll need to send various documents. So the ET1 claim form, your ET3 response, any order that's been made by the tribunal for this medical report, if this is a medical report for an employment tribunal, any statement from the employee, let's say, if they they put in a grievance about what disability they say they have or what medical conditions they say they have, most importantly, that the occupational physician is sent directly, not via you in HR, but directly from the GP surgery all the relevant medical records. This is because some employees forget what they've got, aren't sure what they've got, can't remember when they've seen their doctor, 
uh, don't perhaps haven't remembered what medications they're on or what treatment has been uh, requested for them. And it's very important that the occupational phys- uh, health practitioner uh, has all the relevant GP records and any hospital records, letters, anything like that, any fit notes. So whatever the GP has written on the fit note will be of some importance in relation to this, well, will be important in relation to this medical report, because what the GP has said uh, the employee is suffering from or has got as by way of a medical condition will, of course, be relevant. It'll be particularly relevant if the occupational health practitioner doesn't agree with some of the comments or diagnoses made on the fit notes. It'll also be important for the occupational practitioner to know about the absence record. I always send a copy, an extract from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission Code of Practice on the Equality Act, the extract concerning disability, and also the guidance on matters to be taken into account in determining questions relating relating to the definition of disability, so that the occupational health practitioner has a guide to tell them whether or not what they are seeing would constitute a disability under Section 6 of the Equality Act. A serious question, Gillian. An occupational health practitioner whose experience will know this anyway and won't need to read it, a occupational health practitioner who's inexperienced probably isn't going to bother reading the pages and pages and pages of the guidance. Does it add anything to send that information? Oh, yes. Even, you know, a, a very experienced occupational health practitioner won't be dealing with these things every day. They do read the guidance. Uh, they'll read the guidance on the particular disability. So if it's mental health, failure to uh, memorize, uh, inability to, to memorize or concentrate, they'll, they'll read that bit. Someone who is not prepared to read the guidance or the extract from the Code of Practice shouldn't be instructed. And every single occupational health practitioner that I have instructed has always been uh, very grateful for these two documents, just to remind themselves. It's important that the occupational health practitioner does read the guidance well, the extract in the guidance is relevant because they are going to answer a question about whether or not, in their opinion, the employee's medical conditions, their mental or uh, physical impairment, constitute a disability under Section 6 of the Equality Act. So it's very important that they do read both these documents or the extracts from these documents. The template uh, instructions go on to say whether or not the uh, doctor the occupational health practitioner, can identify whether or not there's a disability. So if it's a mental health condition or even physical impairment, whether the uh, condition has lasted, is likely to last for 12 months or more, whether it has a substantial impact on the effect on normal day-to-day activities. So that's a very important question that um, you, you need to ask in the, for the report. Uh, you need to ask when the effect started when it's likely to cease, and what the adverse effect is. You want to ask things like what reasonable adjustments should be made and what is the prognosis in respect of the individual's condition. And then you want to ask when the report can be completed and sent. 
And of course, the individual has the right, if they wish to, to see the report before it is sent. As you know, the individual only has a right to correct factual inaccuracies if the doctor gets their date of birth wrong or length of service wrong. And then the report needs to be sent to you uh, so it can be sent to the tribunal by the date that the employment judge has specified in the order. And it has to be disclosed to the other side, of course. Well, of course, that's when there's litigation, Gillian Howard. Very commonly, there won't be litigation. It'll just be an employer trying to find out how to handle sickness absence. How, how, how does it work then? Indeed. How it works there is the, the same protocol that the occupational practitioner, health practitioner, will need to send a copy of the report first to the patient, to the employee, if they've asked for it, and they normally do. And then the report can be sent to the employer. and usual protocol is then to share the report with the individual, ask the individual whether they agree with the responses and the conclusions that the occupational health practitioner has made. Sometimes the occupational health practitioner has been a little pessimistic and sometimes the employee says, no, I think that, um, you know, I think that uh, I'll get better and back to work sooner uh, and I won't need this lengthy return to work. So the report must be shared and discussed with the individual. Now, moving back to a non-litigation setting, so where an employer has somebody off sick, usually long term, the employer might want to get an occupational health assessment, but the employee might be suspicious or reluctant. Can an employer compel the employee to subject themselves to an occupational health assessment? Very short answer, no. They can't compel them. Nobody can be compelled. That would be a breach of uh, article, the right to respect for privacy. But it's most important to have a sound clause in the contract where the employee has already agreed that they will submit to a medical examination at any time during their employment, a medical practitioner chosen by the employer at the cost of the employer. So at least the employer can then point to the term in the contract and remind the employee that they've agreed to this in advance. It doesn't, of course, uh, it can't possibly compel them. But the most important thing is to ask the individual why they are refusing. Because as you say, if they are suspicious, if they've had a bad experience with one occupational health practitioner, then you can um, reassure them that this different health practitioner is not going to disclose clinically sensitive medical information, for example, and that it's in the employee's interest because the downside of an employee absolutely refusing to go for a medical assessment is that the employer is then entitled to decide whether or not the time has come for either a disciplinary warning if it's an absence issue or if it's a health issue, whether the time has come to look at a capability dismissal. And it's very important to point out the consequences in writing of the employee who persistently refuses to go for an occupational health assessment so that they're in no doubt they're not going to be compelled. But the downside of refusing is that the employer may be hampered in not having sufficient knowledge and having to take a view about whether or not they can continue them in employment. What are the most common objections that you've experienced from employees who don't want to be assessed by occupational health? One is that the last time they went, their clinical medical records 
were disclosed in breach of the report, the report that didn't specify sensitive clinical medical records, but the doctor or nurse disclosed them to the employer. And that is a terrible breach of medical confidentiality and something which does cause very serious concern. Um, the other reason, the most common reason I've heard, is that their union rep has told them not to, which, of course, is not a very positive way of looking at things. Uh, it's not good advice. Uh, and it's very important to bring the union rep in, if that is the union advice, to explain to the union rep that the offer of the medical assessment is to assist the employer, to assist their member. And it is not in their member's interests uh, to say, no, I'm not going for a medical assessment. It's also important to point out to the union rep that the employee has already agreed to this in advance in the contract. So those are the two most common uh, reasons for not wanting. Do you need employment advice that's professional, practical and personal? Whether you're an employer or an employee, Hunter Law protects you by taking time to understand your individual requirements at competitive and flexible prices. That's the Hunter Law way. Check them out at www.hunterlaw.uk. That's www.hunterlaw.uk. I'm speaking with Gillian Howard from Gillian Howard Associates on instructing occupational health practitioners. Gillian, how does an employer or can an employer get hold of the employee's medical records? They can with the employee's explicit written consent, but actually an employer shouldn't get these medical records. They're not doctors. They're not going to be able to read them. They're not going to be able to understand necessarily what these records say. And it's not really for the employer to dig into medical records, even if they're the, which they will be, the relevant medical records. So it's not really up to the employer to dig into medical records. That's for the occupational health practitioner and then to sum up what the records say. In the instructions to the occupational health practitioner, Gillian, uh, should you ask them to give an opinion as to whether the employee has a disability under the Equality Act 2010? Absolutely. This is one of the most important roles of an occupational health practitioner. Having seen the employee and discussed what medical conditions they've got, what effect it has on them, and read the GP records, that is a very important question that the occupational health practitioner should be asked and should write in the report. And if they don't write it in the report, or if it's ambiguous, what should they do? They should write back to the doctor to say, you have given me an ambiguous answer. Please, will you answer the question? In your opinion, does this employee with their medical condition fit under the a definition of a disabled person under Section 6 of the, Disability, of the Equality Act. Now, what the occupational physician should not do, and this has been criticised in two cases involving BT, is give an opinion as to whether or not they've been discriminated against. Uh, and that, in that case, the same occupational health practitioner gave in their medical report their opinion as to whether or not discrimination had taken place. Now, that, of course, is for the tribunal to decide. The, the key question is whether or not, in the opinion of the occupational health practitioner, does this employee fit under the definition of a disabled person under Section 6 of the Act? 
You brought up a really interesting point, actually, about um, writing back to the occupational health practitioner and pressing them for an answer on whether they think the employee is disabled. Because in my experience, a lot of employers and, and some HR professionals as well run shy of cross-examining doctors. That There's almost a view that the doctor's initial first response is sacrosanct. And because they are God in human form, they shouldn't be questioned. Uh, do you have a view on that? Oh, yes. And so do the employment tribunals. There's been a very important tribunal years ago, uh, which said that you are entitled as the employer to get the answer to the question that you've asked. And if the doctor hasn't given it at all, or if an ambiguous answer has been given, you are entitled to go back before you pay for the report to say, I'm sorry, I either don't understand your answer or your answer doesn't answer the question that I've asked. Please, would you give me an answer to the question and spell it out again? And the doctor is duty bound. I mean, this is their job to answer the question. Now, if it's outside their expertise, then they can say that. But you're not going to ask anything that's outside the expertise of an occupational health practitioner. What does a typical OH practitioner report cost? Is there a range of reasonable prices? Yes. I mean, it will depend on the number of uh, documents that they've got to, to read. If it's a straightforward occupational health assessment during employment, it shouldn't be more than six, £800. But if it's for the purposes of an employment tribunal and the doctor's got to read quite a lot, it can be up to £1,600, £1,800 or even £2,000. Sometimes an employer can suspect that a employee is malingering or fraudulently claiming to be sick or injured. Is it a good idea to tip the occupational health practitioner off that you as an employer suspect that to be the case? Absolutely not. The right procedure to do is to get the occupational health practitioner to see the employee and to assess them as they appear in front of them and as the medical records appear. What we did in a case, we then had a private detective following this particular person. They were parking the cheek of it in the company car park, running with a rucksack up the road to the gym, spending three hours in the gym, running back, ditching the rucksack in the boot, looking very agile when this person said she had a bad back that was laid her up in bed for days. So we asked the occupational health practitioner for a report without seeing that. And the report said, you know, the patient reports to me that she can't do this, that and the other. And then we showed the private detective's video recording. And then we got the occupational physician uh, practitioner to write a second report. And he was able to gainsay and contradict uh, what the patient had told him in the first assessment. That must have been fun. Oh, it was. <laughs> it was. Uh, the doctor was very, very upset. Who does your HR work if you're not yet big enough to employ someone in-house? Mike Klein of Feeman Consulting has years of HR experience, leaving you free to get on and run your business. You can contact Mike at www.femanconsulting, that's F-E-M-A-N, femanconsulting.co.uk. For the last couple of years, we've 
had mostly, not exclusively, mostly occupational health assessments over cloud video platforms such as Zoom. How does that work? How can somebody assess whether an employee has a bad back or a bad neck over Zoom? Very difficult. And I've had a case where the employee had a union rep hidden in the corner and they were being tipped off during the health assessment as to what they should be saying. We only knew that because when they asked for a break, they forgot that they were recording the health assessment and that the union rep popped up from the corner and um, they were talking about how they'd managed to wheedle some answers and and, uh, tried to you know, give false answers to the occupational health practitioner. It was uh, shocking. No, the, the problem is you can't see someone on a Zoom. You can't test their legs. You can't watch them coming up the stairs. Quite often when someone says they have a bad back, but it isn't actually that bad or bad at all, what the physician does is they watch them from the car park. They watch them coming up the stairs. They watch them sitting in their waiting room. They watch them how they come into the, to their office. Uh, You can't do any of that on Zoom. So it's not been very successful. If the meeting is on Zoom, or even if it's in person, should the occupational health practitioner record the session in case there's a dispute later about what was said? My view is, yes, they should. This is particularly important where someone has a mental health condition. They may say things which they then deny afterwards. It's very important to have a verbatim record. And actually, That message goes for all disciplinary and grievance hearings in an employer's situation. Um, You need to have a verbatim record of what someone has said in a grievance hearing, what someone said in a disciplinary hearing, what someone said in a return to work, perhaps not return to work interview, but in a capability interview, so that you have an absolutely verbatim record. People sometimes say things which they don't mean to say. Uh, Sometimes they say things which they then deny saying because they either can't remember or wish they hadn't said it. And it's just important to have a verbatim record. And most doctors will do that now. But it needs the employee's consent, of course. Yes, of course. Of course, it does need the employee's consent. Uh, You know, Gillian, I'm actually with you on this. I'm a big fan and I've been saying for years all disciplinary hearings should be recorded, not necessarily transcribed. You need to transcribe if there's a real problem, but recorded. And every single HR professional I've ever met just resists it, largely because, um, and and most are very frank about it, largely because um, they're worried that either the managers who are running the proceedings will mess something up, and they don't want a recording of that, or because they're worried that they might say something unwise, or because, and I find this a, a much less convincing argument that they think people won't be as frank as they would be if they weren't being recorded. And that just doesn't make sense to me because surely an employee who's up with a disciplinary or performance management um, hearing will want to say everything they can to save their jobs, whether they're being recorded or not. So I'm, I'm glad that you think the same, that these should all be recorded, but I fear we're, we're knocking our heads against a bit of a brick wall when it comes to disciplinaries and grievances. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. In actual fact, employers who have recorded disciplinaries and grievances have found that employees are more than willing to say whatever they want to say. It doesn't inhibit them at all. I had a fabulous case where we dismissed a night shift supervisor who'd stayed in his office rather than going around doing a, a 
in his supervision. And there'd been a fire where he would have spotted it if he hadn't been sitting in his office. And then during the disciplinary hearing, he said to me, because I was there, well, what would you prefer to do? Sit in a nice warm office and, and read girly magazines or go out into that cold, wet plant? I thought, yes, thank you. All right. Now, there, there is such a follow-up question there, Gillian Howard. What girly magazines do you read? <laughs> I don't read any, thank you. <laughs> all right last question Gillian Howard um just remind me explain to me what the law is about telling the employee what the report will say and what the employee's rights are to see a copy of the report the legal rights for an employee to see a copy of the report before or at the same time as the employer is where the doctor concerned has had clinical care for that patient. But, and obviously an occupational physician, an occupational health practitioner will not have had clinical care, but the GMC guidance on good medical practice requires, in paragraph 114, requires any doctor doing an employment assessment or an assessment for an insurance claim to show or disclose the report before it goes to the employer or insurance company to the individual. So from an ethical point of view, uh, quite often the occupational health physician will actually dictate the report in front of the employee at the end of the meeting so they know exactly what is being said, which is a very clever and sensible way of of dealing with it. But the employee will see the report either before or at the same time as the employer. And what, what happens if the employee then says... I don't want you showing that to my employer. I don't like what's in it. Yes, that has happened. Uh, And when that happens, if the doctor can't persuade the employee to allow them to disclose the report, it's the same principle if they won't agree to the assessment at all. The employer is entitled to say, we are going to draw a negative inference from your refusal to allow us to see the report. We are going to have to make a decision on the basis of Uh, no report at all. And as you know, in the case of Bacchus and the GCHQ, uh, the tribunal dismissed Mr. Bacchus's disability claim because he refused to go for a medical. And they said, well, the employer is hampered. It's not fair. And therefore, we will not entertain your claim. And therefore, the employer is entitled to say, we are going to have to go on the evidence we have. And we're going to draw negative inference from the fact that you will now not allow the doctor's report to be sent to us. Gillian Howard, thank you. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you uh, to seek advice, what's the best way to contact you? Well, to seek advice, they must go to you because you are the advisor. If they would like to know, for example, a good occupational health practitioner, they can go to my website, which is www.gillianhoward.co.uk. Or they can contact me on my email, which is gillian at gillianhoward.co.uk. I'd be delighted to share any medical evidence, any uh, good doctors, that sort of thing. I'd be delighted to share with them. That was Gillian Howard, who practices from Gillian Howard Associates and is a consultant at Leighton's Solicitors. Gillian, thank you so much. In next week's episode, I'm speaking with Anthony Sendel, a barrister at Littleton Chambers and a director of Mediation Rescue about workplace mediation. Have a fantastic Easter weekend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe 
And please do leave a review for Employment Law Matters on your podcast app. All reviews help grow this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett, and I'll speak to you next week. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.